This week on Semi-Intellectual Musings. We ask what the hell is going on in the world and play a little friend or foe. We invited a guest to talk about how we can push back against tyranny. This is Revolutionary Forces of Change. I saw some spring rolls in the drive up. Yeah, we uh, like stopped for some spring rolls. Uh, four for a dollar, man. You can't go wrong. That's awesome. And uh, what was left in that bag was uh, just three sad little, very cold spring rolls at the bottom of the bag. And lots of grease. Yeah, a lot of grease. Uh, okay, welcome to Semi Intellectual Musings. This is a weekly podcast co hosted by myself, Philip Primo, and Matt Sanderson. If you're new here, this is the podcast that brings you fresh takes from the social sciences, humanities, and arts, making connections between the published world and your everyday life. We explore books, music, films, and sports, and strive to make it accessible and interesting. If we don't take ourselves too seriously, we certainly hope that you don't, but we do want you leaving saying, hey, I never thought of it that way. Think of it as joining us for some beers or drinks at the local pub. We do it with book reviews. We do it by diving into history. We'll always be searching for connections, and our commitment to you is our honest researched opinion, or... We'll find someone who knows more than us and bring them on as a guest. And that's exactly what we have in store for you today. Folks, I'd like to welcome Evan Ferguson back to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the woods. Hey, thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be here amongst the trees and chainsaws. It's uh, it's a lovely space you got set up here, and it's a pleasure oh, to be thank back. You. <laughs> yeah, no, welcome, Evan. Uh, I'm looking forward to your show today. It's going to be on the Spanish Civil War, and then we're going to make some interesting contemporary connections, I think. That's the plan, yeah. Yeah, it's something that, um, like, I know a little bit about the Spanish Civil War. I know that you hear the common interpretation that it was just sort of a staging war for World War II. Um, but I think uh, what I'm really excited about in this show is getting into the minutiae and digging into the details as well. Yeah, I'd like to just a little bit of brief history to situate us, but also um, just talk about what uh, who what was fighting the, uh, the fascists and, and what it means for... Um, today's uh today's world fighting fascism it, it's uh it's interesting to look at how things play out in the past and how they uh they just constantly uh return new in various ways now evan uh you were previously on the show in episode five uh that was a whole long time ago a whole 21 <laughs> episodes ago uh we were at matt's place in what was to become uh the baby girl's room so violet's room uh, blankets up all over the place. Yeah. Echoey still. Very echoey. It's still echoey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but that's not all that has changed in the world since the last time we sat down together to talk anarchism and anthropology. Uh, the world feels to me like it has moved even more to the right. Uh, Charlottesville, alt-right rallies, statues coming down, resistance to statues coming down, Trump, uh, past president's slave holdings drawing attention to, the NFL's a mess, uh, protests about eating cake in protests about eating cake uh, and racist police officers being pardoned are just some of the issues that our Southern friends are facing at home here in Canada, heightened fears of Haitian and other asylum seekers have resurfaced. School names are being debated. There is an outrage over modest minimum wage increases while a slimy Senator is again after more public funds. Um, more than a few steps backwards for trans inclusiveness have been taken across North America over the last couple of weeks. 
Um, and in a no-win situation, the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League's commissioner is defending the league's use of English on and off the ice between players and coaches. The debate was sparked when a Russian player who was refused English language training while playing for a team in the predominantly French language area of Saguenay. The team says that life after hockey requires French, while the player and the league are saying that English is the language of hockey. It raises an interesting debate around language at work, minority language communities in Quebec, and about a decade-old French language policy in Quebec that no one is quite sure is working. Uh, Evan, before we get into the show, from politics to immigration to inclusiveness to sports drama, what the hell is going on? <laughs> well, Provide us with some answers, Evan, please. That's what I'm here to answer in a brief 40-minute segment. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I've been thinking a lot, obviously, this is all of these points have been in the news, and um, I'd like to give a brief shout-out to a, a film I saw recently uh, called Hypernormalization, an Adam Curtis film, great guy for the BBC. But he was drawing the point that uh, it's been a long time now since anybody's really posited a positive worldview in politics. It's uh, A lot of his work is all about the fact that, you know, whoever has the darkest imagination about what will happen next seems to take the seat of power. Right, yeah. And so with all these uh, terrifying and sad things coming to fruition, uh, I thought it'd be interesting to take a look back and, and try and figure out who in the past has posited worldviews and how powerful that is in fighting the rise of rampant, um, you know, darkness or fascism or what have you. Yeah, it seems to me like the positiveness always escapes that negative void that's created when you see things like these alt-right rallies or when you see the suppression of even minute changes to labor. Uh, like the proposed wage hikes are being met with re- like some pretty ridiculous arguments, to be honest with you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems fear really is the order of the day. And uh, any attempts to make things better are uh, seen as outlandish or met with virulent uh, opposition. Um, you see that in the wage uh, hike disputes for sure. And you also see it in, uh, you know, mainstream politics. You look at uh, figures like Jeremy Corbyn or uh, Sanders in the States. They're not outlandishly left wing by any means, but uh, even their attempts to posit a better world, uh, it's met with derision and ridicule. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that always jumps out on, uh, especially American media. Uh, they're calling Obama a socialist. And whenever they just throw that word out there, it's almost like uh, it's almost like a swear word. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so... I think what we're going to kind of get into in this episode is really digging into the minutiae of these political ideologies. Uh, some are fascist, some are socialist, some are nationalist, and there's also some uh, religion in there as well, just for some flavor. So um, I think in times like this, we need to go beyond this idea of good and evil, right or wrong, and kind of dig into the, the details. Yeah, it reminds me of an episode of The West Wing where um, Santos, who's running for election, so these are in the labor later episodes, uh, turns around and says, I wish everyone would stop calling me a liberal. When when did the word liberal become dirty? When was it wrong to be a liberal, right? And he kind of flips his entire opponent's campaign on its head by saying, what's wrong with being a liberal? Now, see, I, I fall into the camp of, uh, there's a lot of people criticizing liberalism right now, especially in the States, and I, I do have sympathies in that sense. Just um, the way we've been going for the last few decades, it, it does it, Looks like things are changing, and it's it's not working out. The whole Fukuyama idea that yeah, history is over, yeah. we can just manage things by you know, cadre of experts in the government can just tweak things in order to build the best possible world. That doesn't seem to be happening, and all this fear comes out of the the conditions which are uh, unintended there. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of interesting how you mentioned liberal as well because it seems like um, socialist like has been supplanted by the term liberal, and now liberalism has lost its meaning as well. And you see it here in Canada with our uh, prime minister who has taken a lot of the policies or the language of the left and has kind of made it his own, but then it's a I don't know, step off my soapbox, but the same old liberal garbage going on right now <laughs> right. as I look at the Yankees hat across the way. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, I think I'm going to have to stop. We should stop yeah, there. Let's, yeah, I'm going to stop, stop it here. <laughs> I'm, let's leave that there for now. Park that. Um, okay, so a couple listeners, uh, a couple proud, loyal listeners, in fact, have requested a slight change to our format. Uh, so after some deliberation, a few beers, we agreed, Matt and I. So Marion, July, thank you for the suggestions. We're now going to be doing a top five or friend info each episode. So thank you. Uh, today, we'll be tackling as a friend or foe, YouTube or YouTube, oh. the band. Uh, is it friend or is it foe? Uh, and, you know, guests always seem to go first. Uh, I'm tired of being nice all the time. <laughs> Matt, uh, g- start us off on this. YouTube, YouTube, friend or foe? Okay. Uh, friend for YouTube. Um, I hate YouTube the band. Uh-oh. Yeah, I despise it. Um, short story, that's one of the reasons I got kicked out of archaeological field, score, uh, field school. What? Um, but we'll <laughs> How just did leave YouTube it there. No, that's, uh, okay. that's where we'll leave We're that there. there. Future right. episode, teaser, teaser. And maybe a bonus episode. All right, so Matt hates um, YouTube. Yeah, I just don't respect their politics. I think their music is garbage. And um, I think he's just like a shameless capitalist. Bono? Yeah, Bono, Bono, Bono. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the Edge. The fact that he re- like insists on be called the Edge, right? It's like fuck off, <laughs> Seven, <laughs> You too, you too. Yeah, uh, I don't have too much to add to you too as a band. I, I haven't given them much much time in my life, but um, yeah, you know they seem to fill arenas. Good for them. Yeah, I own red stuff. Oh, <laughs> do you guys remember that the Project Red, the Buy Red uh, thing that you two did? Uh, I think a lot of people did it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of different retailers did it for sure. Yeah. And the money was supposed to go to AIDS. I, I would imagine so just cause it's red. I, I, I think, I think yeah. it was AIDS research. I think it was See, AIDS research. Um, Evan didn't have a lot of experience with U2. I did because I couldn't figure out how to freaking delete them off of my iPhone. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, bought a new iPhone, came with a U2 album placed on there, not weird. from my choosing. Uh, that was weird, <laughs> like shoving it down my throat. That's yeah. imperialism right there. Now, That's... interestingly, <laughs> I had to watch a YouTube video to figure out how to delete it on my phone. So, That's awesome. so YouTube is a friend for me. Yeah. You, YouTube, if you wouldn't have, if you wouldn't have like infiltrated my phone, uh, I, I could have lived with it. Uh, the Bono stuff is a little outlandish, but you know, nah. yeah. I, you know, Bloody Monday is a nice song. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, but that was the 80s, man. Well, that's it. So old U2 is good. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, if you hadn't colonized my phone, we could have lived side by side respectfully. But uh, as it stands, you've got to go U2. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> so Evan, foe. U2 oh, is a foe. foe. Matt, definitely a foe. They yeah, kicked you out of you school know. somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to have to, you know what? I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to come down in the middle on this. Really? I know I hate doing it, yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to come down. You know, I think uh, as people, uh, they're probably okay. As the formation of YouTube, no, no. Like individually, probably okay. But uh, under the guise of YouTube, nah. Unless they're listeners of the podcast, in which case, um, shout out to YouTube. Well, we'd love to have them on to defend themselves. 
So, you know, if the edge wants to come on or if Bono wants to come on to defend themselves, hey, we're, we always if got Bono a third, comes on this, mic. If Bono comes on this podcast, he has to take his sunglasses off. I want to see that guy's eyes because <laughs> I bet you there's not a lot behind him. Wait, wait, a stare into his soul? Yeah, I'm going to stare into his soul. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and uh, ask him questions about pro- by red. His eyes are just red. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we get into the show, our friends over at Ono Lick Class have sent us a promo for their great show. Uh, so let's spend a few minutes listening to that. Hey, Megan. Yardic. Did you know that the author of The Scarlet Letter had to shovel poop for a living? No. But do you know that the author of The Handmaid's Tale helped make long-distance sex toys? Who do you think she tested this on? Of course I knew about it. Fair enough. You know all these things and more. Like the difference between Moby Dick and Mocha Dick. If you listen to our show, Oh No Lit Class, a podcast where comedy meets literature and things get nerdy, weird, and maybe even a little bit sexy. It's all on Ono Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. Listen now at onolitclass.com. If you're into literature, into humor of all varieties, or into dead authors in whatever way that pleases you, check out Megan and RJ's show, Ono Lit Class. Uh, Evan, how do you fund your new podcast? That's a great question. I don't have one route. They just kind of fall in my lap sometimes, maybe guests on other podcasts, but nothing. Uh... I don't have any standardized method. Why? Is there a better way? Uh, well, your method seems pretty stupid to me. Uh, it seems... <laughs> he was asking for help, man. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So, you know, if you're tired of searching through lists that are curated by bots uh, and want to find new podcasts with reviews from real people, you have to check out Podchaser. Podchaser is new. It's fun. It's easy to use platform where you can find, rate, and review the podcasts that you love Find new shows that are just amazing as well. Head over to podchaser.com and use our exclusive beta code SIMPOD, S-I-M-P-O-D, for your free account. It's fun. It's free. It's interactive. It's exactly what podcasts are supposed to be. So ditch the bots and join real people on podchaser.com. That's a better way to find podcasts. Awesome. Don't be stupid. Yeah, thanks, (laughs) Phil. Wow, thanks for the tip. (laughs) If you want to join us as real people, or if you have questions, concerns, recommendations, or if you want to help us as a struggling indie show by giving us your reviews, you can reach us on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. You can reach us on Facebook at The SimPod. And while you're there, please use the review button on the page to tell us what you think. You can email us always at semiintellectual at gmail.com. You can find our show, including the archives and our additions and corrections page at thesim.podmean.com. Thank you for tuning in. This is going to be a great episode, Matt. We're really excited about it. So come back. After the break, hear about the Spanish Revolution with Evan, Matt, and myself. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. I'm Philip Primo. I'm joined by our co-host, Matt Sanderson, and our special guest for today, Evan. Uh, Evan will be talking roughly around Spanish Civil War, around uh, attempts to really push back against fascism that were happening on the ground, the kind of mobilization uh, of forces uh, on one side, and how that kind of played out. Uh, so Evan, I'm going to pass it over to you. Give us uh, kind of an overview where you're going with this. Get us going with some history as we like. 
Absolutely. So just uh, on the outset, I'd like to have a little disclaimer in that I am not an historian, obviously. Um, I'm just an enthusiast. Um, so yeah, if I get anything wrong, please do write angry letters to uh, these kind folks here. Uh, you can send those over to Matt. Yeah, at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. <laughs> so uh, to begin, just a brief overview of the constituent groups and what life was like in Spain at the time politically. Uh, I'm going to be talking a lot about a group called the CNT, who were the um, trade union uh, anarchist organizations. They were very, um, very large scale in Spain at the time. They had, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of members at various times. Wow. They uh, they were largely one of the greater uh, mobilized labor organizations, as well as the UGT, who were much less um, intense and revolutionary. They were socialists, uh, but they generally tended to work with political parties in uh any system that was going on at the time. So they had more of an incrementalist approach to change, whereas the anarchists uh, didn't have much interest in playing around with politics as they existed. They just wanted to make life uh, better for people in and of uh, in the world in real time. So this kind of seems like the standard uh, divisions between factions, right? Yeah, like absolutely. We, like the sort of stuff that we see in Latin America, the sort of stuff that we even see today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What do you want to do? Do you want to like make a major revolution down the road and mobilize towards that? Or do you want to make things better here now? Uh, maybe incrementalism. So right, there's yep. exactly standard divisions going on there. Um, so my brief history leading up to this uh, starts off in 1919 when there was a general strike called in Barcelona. It lasted 44 days. This was largely organized by the CNT and UGT. Um, and they made major victories. Uh, they procured like the eight-hour workday, for example, and raised wages for industrial workers. Uh, so generally made things better for the trodden-upon classes at the time. Um, Spain at the time was largely in uh, a stranglehold from ruling elite uh, who were deeply tied to the clergy, as well as bourgeois and crown interests. So this is happening after World War One. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Influx of money into Spain following World War One, and now we see uh, redistribution attempts from uh, the LNT and the UGT. Exactly. Yeah, and we we see a lot more uh, European ideas coming to Spain at the time too. After the the, the First World War, suddenly all of these ideas are uh, coming to rural areas and and urban areas. It also coincides with a period of mass urbanization in Spain itself. People coming to work in industry and coming into contact with all of these ideas of uh, revolutionary intent. Right, um, yeah. So can I just ask a clarity question? So why was money flowing into Spain at this time after World War One? Were they neutral during the war or is that why? I don't know. Uh, well, we see uh, across a lot of different countries after World War One a kind of heightened prosperity. So increased trade flows, um, increased emphasis on manufacturing, but as like Evan is pointing to, just increased industrialization, really. Mm. So... After the uh, 1919 strike, um, the state and the ruling classes were not very happy with uh, this increased power held by labor organizations. So they kind of went to war with the uh, the CNT and other uh, organized labor associations. There were multiple assassinations on all sides, too. Um, everybody was just killing off leaders of each, <laughs> each other's uh, yeah. movements and parties and whatnot. And most of the people who were assassinated were the moderates. You know, the people right, who were yeah. in charge at the time. So you see an increasing amount of the radicalized people on the right and on the left um, having positions of power or uh, being at the forefront anyway. 
Um, were there, so you're saying assassinations all over the place. The state was orchestrating assassinations. So would you say the state was moderate at that time, assassinating people as well? Like, <laughs> so like were the moderates also being radicals as well at this time? Yeah, well, the, the state, I would not say was uh, moderate at the time, was largely um, operating in the interest of the crown. Um, but the, you know, the, the people who were calling for moderate liberalism were the ones uh, largely being assassinated. The, the incrementalists were uh, not faring well at the time, nor the, the trade unionists who were interested in cooperation or uh, what have you. They were being killed off as well. Um, can I just ask a quick follow-up? Um, would these people who were assassinated, um, and maybe the assassinators, were they kind of thought of as martyrs later in the Spanish Civil War? Like, would these be people that they'd rally around? It's kind of an out there question, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. I, I actually, I, I'm going to touch on that very uh, matter in about 10 years. Um, oh, perfect. <laughs> perfect. So we'll uh, so hold put a in pin on that one. Hold, hold on to that one. <laughs> All right, cool. But short answer, uh, yes, okay, uh, cool. at various points especially. So, um, so in the 1920s, uh, the, uh, the Spanish uh, state was trying to do some colonial stuff in Morocco, and it didn't go well. They lost. Uh, they lost many, many soldiers uh, trying to keep hold of Morocco, and this led to uh, a lot of interest in uh, fascism. Uh, while Italy was turning fascist as well, a lot of the right were uh, becoming disillusioned with what the existing um, state structure was like and uh, wanted a strong man of sorts. Huh. So, in the ni- in 1923, eventually there was a military coup, uh, and Primo de Riviera um, came into power. This was abetted by the crown um, to some extent, though they were tentative on this matter, though eventually deciding that Primo de Riviera had their interests at heart, and so they were um, uh, sponsored by the, the crown. The CNT was banned. Meanwhile, the UGT, the, the socialist people, were willing to work with the state in order to maintain labor organizations. And at the time, there were a number of economic modernization projects going on. So de Riviera had some uh, popularity on, on all sides at the time. He was uh, really modernizing the country while this mass urbanization was going on. However, he did ostracize many in the military. And as things started going um, forward, there was a lot of disillusion with him. And he resigned quietly in 1930, later to die a few months later in France. Uh, in the 30s, the king tried to restore the liberal order after this, um, and it didn't go very well. The CNT resumed, but there was a Republican coup attempted. People were interested now in a greater degree of self-rule, um, and it was to much popular appeal. These Republicans who were suppressed uh, were held up as martyrs and heroes. Even the courts did not uh, try them harshly. Um, so when you say liberal order, did they have pre-existing liberal governments, like maybe even before World War One? Not especially, no, not in structure. Um, the when I see, yeah, it's a good question. When I say liberal order, I mean more with a focus on looking into giving better conditions to um, laborers and what like have you. Progressive, exactly. Of, yeah. Okay. yeah, trying to uh, to cut off the the most radical fringes and and make it work for the people who uh, who did want a greater degree of self rule and power. Um, so after after this restoration of liberal order and the Republican coup, the uh, Republicans uh, won massively in an election in 1931 that was held. Um, and so they were the first European country to return from a dicta- major dictatorship in the time, uh, with Italy and Germany marching towards fascism. It looked like Spain was going in a much better direction in terms of self-rule. Uh, however, the 30s led to massive economic depression 
and the Republican uh, factions became increasingly factional and there was a lot of bickering going on. Uh, this led to major radicalization on the left and the right, the right kind of coalescing around this fascist ideal and the left um, infighting between Soviet-style communists who wanted to bring about a revolution at some point, um, according to epical steps, and coalitions were failing left and right. So in 1934, there was another attempted revolution against the government by um, left-wingers, and this was shut down brutally, and right-wing fascist uh, alliance leadership was in power at the time, so they had genuine concerns that the fascists would take hold of the government, which ended up happening. But the major hero in this uh, brutal repression was Generalissimo Franco, who uh, then seemed to be a major figure in the military. And increasingly in the mid to mid thirties here, you see a general sense that there will have to be a military coup soon, especially on the right. They're looking towards people like Franco, take hold of the country and uh, bring it in a, a powerful new direction. So at this time, was Franco uh, popular? Yeah, this especially in his uh, his actions in shutting down this uh, attempted revolution or what have you, he uh, he became seen as as a real hero on the right for that matter. Did uh, he have his own brand of propaganda and cult of personality? I just got finished reading the Mao book, so I'm all in the cult of personality mode. But did he do the same sort of things, trying to build himself up as a hero figure? It's a good question. I don't know too much about his own personal uh, attempts towards that. Uh, I would assume that yes, especially later on. The propaganda toward, like, in favor of him, grew uh, tremendously, and that that might be something that I do. I might uh, try to find some images and throw up a little slideshow for this one as well after the episode, because I'd be interested to see as well. So it's a terrific idea. Um, so then, anyway, to finish this uh, history off, the left decided to form a coalition called the Popular Front, which was composed of mostly international communists and socialists. So it was in line with all of the uh, communist parties around the world and the Soviet uh, governments. Um, and they won an election very narrowly, but the coalition fell apart and violence and anarchy reigned. Uh, the right used this to make political hay. And by July of 1936, the right had mobilized as such that uh, a coup really seemed inevitable. And so that's how we get to the revolution and the start of the Spanish Civil War. The, uh, the war starts with the coup beginning in Morocco. Franco takes Morocco, and within 72 hours, uh, almost half the country has fallen under um, army control. This was suppressed uh, originally by the trade unions. The Republican government, the left-wing coalition, was uh, very weak at the time and had very little interest in suppressing it. The trade unions requested the... Uh, right to bear arms and, and fight back, and the, the Republican government did not provide them with that. So general strikes were called, and the unions mobilized. Uh, and because they were able to do so so quickly, they were able to shut down a lot of the uh, the army's attempts to take hold in major industrial centers. Um, and in some cases, the army saw how fast they were mobilizing and didn't even try in the first place. So that that's how originally the, uh, the right wing were able to be suppressed in this coup, and the war broke out. So um, I just want to bring you back uh, a small bit in this history before we get into the labor union's real work on the ground. Um, my understanding and my experience is that Spain is in, uh, highly regional. Um, so divisive between regions, politically, socially, culturally. Uh, what sort of um, differences can you talk about 
between Spain so that we start to move a little bit away from like the monolithic Spain moved right, moved left and that kind of thing. Because I think with the labor union kind of history, it is a regional one as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So you see largely in rural areas, especially in the South and in the West, um, there's still a deep tie to the clergy and uh, existing class and power structures, much less modernized. So those areas were uh, generally much more sympathetic to the uh, the military and the coup, the people who held those interests. Uh, however, it's in the urban centers, especially in the Northeast, in uh, Catalonia and a little bit in Aragon and Valencia, regions like that, where you see the people who have been uh, organizing for a while and are interested in resisting this entirely. And um, it's funny, I've actually been to Catalonia and uh, Barcelona, and um, something that I didn't know about until I went there was that they have a particular type of, um, they call it ethno-nationalism, where they have their own um, particular type of Spanish, uh, their own dialect. They probably say it's their own distinct language. Um, and it kind of struck me as uh, reminiscent of Quebec here in Canada, where um, some people want to separate, other people are a little bit more moderate. So um, yeah, definitely I can attest to that as well, the regionalization of um, political um, ideology. Yeah, it'd be good to note, actually, that at the time, Catalonia and Basque had uh, deep independence movements going as well. So there were definitely those dynamics at play, too. Yeah, and we see, um, like when I was in Basque County, or uh, country, uh, those sorts of propaganda posters and the sort of stuff that was uh, around during the labor movement's kind of fight against the right um, gets picked back up in modern day rhetoric around nationalism. Um, so what, what does it mean to be a certain type of person from a certain region gets linked to how one works the earth or how one, how one's labor gets, uh, processed in a manufacturing kind of facility or something, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's fascinating to look at the, the regional intricacies and, and characters of, of all of these places again yeah it's it's it, you're right it is important not to talk about it as a monolith because there's always prior and uh regional um, variations on what's going on and what it means to them and um it should be noted as well uh barcelona and madrid i believe uh they both have kind of like pseudo, like i guess it'd be like dukes and duchesses or something but they have like small kind of figurehead at this point uh monarchies um but I imagine back uh, at this time, it might have figured in more prominently. So there's also a, a royal sort of dimension to all this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. you see the, uh, the royals trying to clasp on or grasp on to, to every passing movement in right, order yeah. to mm-hmm. weasel themselves in as an yeah. important player. But as uh, the 20s and 30s roll, roll down, um, they become more and more marginalized and less and less uh, of utility to the uh, the warring political entities. So um, let's move into tactics on the ground. Some of the stuff that uh, the labor movements used or did. Uh, you're talking about a well-funded military excursion or excursions being suppressed, uh, stopped, halted, um, thwarted across the country in many different localities. How did it happen how how did a labor union <laughs> do that because it seems to me like that's the epitome of how the left can organize right absolutely so what what is different about these uh folks is that they have a, a deep history of um political action which involves uh warfare so the both the cnt and the ugt had huge caches of uh, weapons 
that they uh, would have to keep burying every time they were right, uh, yeah. banned or suppressed or what have you. But they knew where they were. So when the war or the, the, the coup began, they were able to go back to these caches immediately and pick up uh, most of the weapons that they had. Right. And this is something that um, can sometimes get forgotten in histories of clashes, right? These are violent clashes that we're talking about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the violence was uh, rampant, especially leading up to it. It uh, was described as pure chaos in many situations where the assassinations were unbelievable. The uh, you know leaders were having to go into hiding, into exile just to avoid dying. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of violence going on and a lot of anger bubbling up to the surface. And these are in the early days of 1936. Um, and as these uh, early days progress into the early months and into the first year, um, do you see these smaller skirmishes starting to settle down and kind of people hunkering down, so to speak, and entrenching themselves? Or does the Spanish Civil War always have this characteristic of anarchism and like throwing a bomb at somebody as they're walking down the street. <laughs> well, I like to decouple those two things a little bit, but um, <laughs> Please do. anarchism is not an inherently violent uh, political ideology. I would uh, like to note at that point, but um, the factionalism is, is incredible and, and there's always infighting, especially as you, you see going into the revolution, which uh, we'll, we'll talk about, but um, you see tremendous amounts of inter-party violence and uh, George Orwell, who we'll get to, who fought famously in the war, was wounded not by fascist uh, snipers, but by the uh, the Soviet-affiliated um, uh, communists in Barcelona. So we have a lot of people on the ground representing several different ideological standpoints. Uh, I want to understand a little bit, what does a victory for the labor side look like? Uh, what did that lead to? Kind of, if you could walk us through maybe an example, if you have one, or... Give us a picture of what it would be like on the ground after a victory. Yeah, absolutely. So it varies wildly depending on who was actually the ones taking uh, power at the time. So I, I will be talking mostly to the uh, the CNT anarchist um, situations. Largely in Catalonia, they, they had a huge amount of um, representation and uh, people were largely on board, it seemed, with their interests. So cultural changes happened uh, immediately. Suddenly, there was no more calling people usted or uh, saying um, uh, buenos dias. It was all tu and salud, very comradely types of speech. Tipping became forbidden. Restaurants, etc., became uh, run were run by the uh, the workers themselves. Public utilities, industry, up to seventy five percent of industry uh, was collectivized and uh, you know run wow. by these uh, these trade unions. Um, I'll only kind of in passing reference uh, Ernest Hemingway, who wrote uh, the book For Whom the Bell Tolls, and it's a book on his um, quote-unquote experiences during the Spanish Civil War. But that is one of the points uh, that you mentioned, the culture change, where they changed the uh, terms of address for each other, Um, whether you are uh, under anarchist control or maybe you're under um, the uh, UGT control, the socialists, um, your terms of address will change, right? And it's almost like you can see the regionalization and the political regionalization as well at the same time. Absolutely, yeah. And it seems like in most left-wing movements too, you see people start to call each other comrade and the, the terms of address and speech change in yeah, order to uh, facilitate a more brotherly sense of um, companionship and, and camaraderie. And this is um, what you see where it becomes more than just a political ideology, where it becomes um, part of your everyday life, right? Yeah. And it kind of changes how you engage with the world and move about. 
Yeah, the social ideal of uh, equality uh, is very strong in these situations, and it it's pretty cool. You hear like anecdotes about how um, trams were all painted red in Barcelona, and all cars were pr- uh, taken out of private control and run for people's uh, sakes. Wow. So it kind of feels to me like uh, it's the leftist dream or <laughs> the closest that we've seen to something like a Marxist revolution. It's often pointed to as the uh, the greatest um, uh, greatest uh, scenario of anarchist uh, working of an actual urban center being made into a you know utopian uh, equalist uh, sort of social situation. So okay, this is a, just an honest to goodness question because um, I was always in the assumption that anarchism was a political ideology, but it seems like what you're describing is that. These anarchist groups had as their political ideology sort of a leftist bent and um, anarchism was just sort of the means through which to to do leftist politics. I don't know. Like, can you unpack that a bit? Because I'm yeah. getting kind of mixed up. This The anarchism component of this has always confused me. It's yeah. Kind of civil war. Well, absolutely. Yeah, I, I might paint in <laughs> slightly broad strokes to uh, to talk about this. But generally, the anarchists and communists agree upon most things and as the end goal. But uh, especially the Soviet-affiliated communists were interested in um, maintaining bourgeois society and taking like a, a couple uh, steps towards revolution. Um, anarchists believe that we should build the new world in the shell of the old and begin immediately in terms of revolutionizing society, operate as though the powers in your way don't exist, and just go about creating the society that you want. And so the, the conflicts inherent in that are um, that... You know, uh, the communists generally did not uh, believe that it was being done in the proper order, in the proper manner, that the state was not um, the state. They believed that the state should be centralized as a dictatorship of the proletariat, whereas the anarchists are more interested in just working around the state and not giving the state the time of day. So before we get into when they kind of got entrenched, I think we're missing the step of propaganda. If we have all these political ideologies vying for position and prominence over each other, then they have to do so through with uh, propaganda. So can we just start talking about propaganda a bit? Because I know it's a big feature. The propaganda in the Civil War was uh, beautiful and really interesting, too, because of the mass uh, masses of people who were illiterate at the time. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the artwork was featured prominently. And um, still does. Exactly, yeah. And it's, it's, it's some really beautiful stuff if you just Google um, Spanish Civil War artwork, as well as the uh, the music at the time. Every every faction had their own songs and, and what have you. The uh, the Republicans had a song called I Carmela as their rallying cry. The uh, the CNT had Alas Barricadas as their uh, song. And they're, they're both still beautiful, and uh, you can look them up on YouTube. They're fun to listen to which is a friend, not a foe. <laughs> uh, continuing on that track of artwork, uh, speaking of arts, there have been some notable authors who have written on, about, or from uh, the trenches. You brought up Orwell, uh, Hemingway. Uh, I want to move a little bit into a critique of kind of what was going on at that time. Um, so how about we start uh, talking how about we start with a quote from, uh, who do you want to quote, Matt? Um, well, the bulk of my quotes are all coming from Orwell. So, um, I okay, got, let's do Orwell. Them, uh, yeah, let's do Orwell. That sounds like a plan. Um, in terms of, uh, Orwell's participation, he, um, had a small experience on the front line, but for the most part, it was, uh, 
kind of characterized by fits and starts, and then he got shot in the neck, and that kind of put an end to his service. Um, but I have a, a kind of a great uh, quote from his famous book called uh, Homage to Catalonia, and it's kind of like an ethnographic account of his experience over a year in Spain. Um, and this is talking about lice. The human louse somewhat resembles a tiny lobster, and he lives chiefly in your trousers. Short of burning all of your clothes, there is no way of getting rid of him. Down the seams of your trouser, he lays the glittering white eggs, like tiny grains of rice, which hatch out and breed families of their own at horrible speed. I think pacifists might find it helpful to illustrate their pamphlets with enlarged photos, graphs of lice. <laughs> Glory of war indeed! In war, all soldiers are lousy, at the least when it is warm enough. The men that fought at Verdun, at Waterloo, at Floden, at Senlac, at Thermopylae, every one of them had lice crawling all over their testicles. <laughs> so that's a perfect little encapsulation of George Orwell's experience. He went there as a political idealist, and then he got confronted with the political realities of fighting a conflict and getting lousy on so, his testicles. I mean, I think one of the messages there is that any conflict is dirty. Absolutely. Uh, Spain's an interesting one because it was at the, the tail end, you know, of the idea that war is a, a noble uh, endeavor. Exactly, yeah. And so you, you see the, the juxtapositions here of it being a deeply ideological battle. And, and obviously we'll get to this many, many combatants flowing in from all over the world fighting for their, these ideals, but also the, uh, the absolute degradation of uh, conditions in war. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about those combatants for a second. Uh, so you had uh, a rift that was internal uh, to Spain. So we had uh, Spaniards uh, taking up arms, fighting for labor in, I guess, in theory and in fact, for other Spanish uh, comrades. But we also had international travelers come to Spain. A tremendous amount, yeah. Um, estimates are that there were 10,000 Frenchmen uh, who came over to fight in the war. And the, the French government at the time was a, a deeply left-wing one itself, but uh, for whatever myriad reasons decided to stay out of it uh, on technical grounds. So Spain had the, the greatest contingent of international fighters come in. Uh, an interesting tidbit is that Canada had the second largest uh, volunteer to uh, per capita ratio of uh, fighters coming in. And we've got a nice little uh, memorial here in Ottawa to the, all the, uh, the fighters who went over to Spain. Now, Seriously, I didn't know that. <laughs> now, on paper, Canada was neutral. Absolutely, yeah. To go and fight, you had to uh, do so uh, somewhat clandestinely. There was uh, mass organizations, people would go over to Toronto and mobilize there, and then they'd sneak onto steamers through New York or Montreal. Um, they were well aware of the fact that it was legal to go and fight and could uh, lead for, to uh, ramifications and repercussions from the Canadian state. So, Same anywhere else, too, to be uh, fair. So why were these people flocking to Spain, uh, I'm going to think, to fight predominantly for the labor-organized uh, side of this conflict? Well, a lot of them were organized through Marxist parties um, that were uh, not taking marching orders, but were heavily influenced by the uh, USSR at the time. So you see a lot of people going over to fight for the communist-affiliated uh, uh, groups and parties involved. Um, there were also people who went for other ideals, uh, anarchists, what have you. Uh, George Orwell himself went to fight for the Pum militia, which was a, a Trotskyite uh, group uh, led by Andres Nin, I believe. Uh, and th their their whole take was pretty much just anti-Stalinist. They they were on the side of revolution now, um, whereas the Stalinists were uh, trying to uh, forcibly stop it and bring back bourgeois liberal order until the war was won. Um, I have another quote here from Orwell that gets right at the uh, different political factions and some of the reasons he went there. 
Except for the small revolu- small revolutionary groups which exist in all countries, the whole world was determined upon preventing revolution in Spain. In particular, the Communist Party, with Soviet Russia behind it, had thrown its whole weight against the revolution. It was the communist thesis that revolution at this stage would be fatal and that what was to be aimed at in Spain was not workers' control, but bourgeois democracy. It hardly needs pointing out why liberal, quote-unquote, capitalist opinion uh, took the same line. If you ask me why uh, I joined the militia, I should have answered to fight against fascism. If you ask me what I was fighting for, I should have answered common decency. <laughs> Absolutely. And you later later remarked in the book that uh, if you were to do it all over again, you would go back and fight for the CNT uh, factions rather than the uh, the Trotskyites. But largely they were on the same side. Yeah, it was it was really... In a sense, for a lot of people, a war about common decency, about equality, about fighting fascism that uh, they were seeing in Italy and in uh, Germany, obviously. And you see this in Orwell's book. You see his um, his intentions and the conflict that he has throughout the year that he spent in Spain. And you do get that sense at the end that he was a little bit more on the fascist side. On the fascist side? That's what I thought, yeah. Interesting. I, I always took him to be anti-fascist, but he was deeply uh, moved by the infighting going on. In, uh, especially in Barcelona, toward the end of his time there, um, as uh, Russian tanks and and guns and influence came in, um, the the Pum Trotskyite militia that he was a part of became vilified as uh, pro fascist, which was absolutely nonsense. But part of the propaganda war going right, on. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's. I think that's what I was trying to get at. Sorry, yeah, I misspoke. But yeah, that's exactly. And that was interesting too. And all of a sudden, he's like being a scapegoat. Um, while they're like trapped in this weird hotel or whatever. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And I, I wonder how much of that uh, just disillusionment with the the communist idea led uh, to works like 1984 and Animal Farm, which <laughs> ironically have become uh, fodder for uh, right wing sentiment, and he's been adopted by right wing people. Um, yeah. To be you know anti anti communist, anti authoritarian, leftist uh, regimes. Oh, yeah. oh, well, interesting. I've never heard that. I never thought of that. Sorry, that's just it. Well, well, let's take the these two examples and uh, put them in uh, on Spain, for example, right? So the example of 1984, uh, which is basically a critique uh, of uh, what space between a ruling elite and a working class can lead to. So if you give in too much or if you allow uh, too much surveillance and these sorts of things, uh, life can be controlled quite centrally and quite harshly. Um, Orwell presents us with this critique. It's commonly read as a critique of liberalism, liberal order, uh, of democracy. Uh, but it could also be read as a critique of the movement of labor uh, itself. Um, so at the time, uh, it is said that these wins carried equality, carried a sense of self-preservation, carried a sense of self-rule. But could it not be the case that these things were centralized, that there were a command posts kind of set up and that it was just a recreation of a certain different form of uh, the fascist forces that they're actually fighting well absolutely centralization of power occurred um pretty much mostly after the revolution uh said to have lasted eight months or so as a stateless uh, entity especially in barcelona and parts of catalonia um but yeah there, there were successes for sure in statelessness and in mass cooperation through syndicates and unions uh, and those sorts of endeavors. But increasingly, as the uh, the Russian influence and, and money came in, the statists uh, became 
much more influential and shut down many of the uh, the anarchist ideals. So as the war progresses, you see the uh, disbanding of the CNT brigades, of all the uh, the leftist brigades that didn't fall under the Soviet-style um, influence structures, and it all became disbanded and incorporated into the Soviet-style brigades. So in that sense, absolutely, uh, it was a failed revolution. But uh, I would not, uh, I would not agree that it was failed in and of itself. But that uh, due to political influence from without and infighting, uh, it, it that's how it became statist once again. There's one critique of the revolution that says that it was uh, coerced to a certain extent. Um, that these sorts of cultural and social changes were forced upon, um, you know, folks living in these regions. Um, what do you, I mean, obviously someone who agrees with leftist politics, leftist mobilization, what is the role of coercion, uh, in these sorts of, uh, revolutions? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me state outright that I'm deeply partisan on these matters. So I will be defending, uh, defending the left, uh, on a lot of the anti-authoritarian left anyway. Um, coercion was also a thing though, amongst the anarchists, there's a, a lot of critiques about, um, you know, you could opt to go against them, but it would not go well for you and there might right. be yeah. incursions of yeah. violence against yeah. you or whatnot. And that that's a thing anywhere in any uh, stateless society is that on a technical level, you're free to go away. But if you go against the social um, mobilization or social order anywhere in any stated or non-state society, there will be ramifications. And both Orwell and Hemingway have uh, sections in their book where they do talk about... Um, uh, people they call quote-unquote deserters, uh, getting uh, captured and shot, just as to make an example. Um, I I think uh, that connection you made to 1984, it just lit a light bulb on top of my head. I never really thought that um, his experience in the Spanish Civil War would have informed his writing of 1984. Um, I have a couple of quotes about journalism and propaganda that I'd just like to throw in here and kind of we can break them down a bit. Um it is the same in all wars. The soldiers do the fighting, the journalists do the shouting, and no true patriot ever gets near a front-line trench, except on the briefest of propaganda tours. Um, and then in terms of this coercion, I have a, a quote about a um, Soviet uh, agent. The <laughs> fat Russian agent was, covering all, uh, was cornering all the foreign refugees in turn and explaining plausibly that this whole affair was an anarchist plot uh, I watched him with some interest, for it was the first time that I had seen a person whose profession was telling lies, unless one counts journalism. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Orwell for you. Um, and it's uh, it's interesting that um, constantly in this book he talks about propaganda, and it never really made that connection that this could be related to 1984. So we've all read the book. I wonder if we can make some connections to propaganda now. Yeah, well, um, propaganda was a... Uh something he became very bitter against uh, in the most part, or for the most part, rather. But uh, yeah, there's propaganda on all sides, and that that's really how wars are, are fought uh, in most situations, is the, the warring factions fight for the, the hearts and minds of of the people on, on their side and on other sides. And so you see a lot of the, uh, the communist propaganda propping up... Um, Ideas that anybody who wasn't in line with the Soviet uh, Soviet uh, affiliated groups and brigades uh, was was dirty or wrong or counter revolutionary or what have you. Yeah, I mean, we could push it a little bit further and even see the cultural changes, the cultural revolutions, as being 
kind of mirrored in 1984. So the changes to the language, changes to how we address each other, uh, the changes to the f- the ways that currency flows through. That's a very um, good point, yeah. So, I mean, I think it was informed by it. The, the book, 1984, was mm. informed by the Spanish Revolution. But I think his target of 1984 still remains uh, a little bit ambiguous. Is it against uh, liberal kind of de- democratic societies, the ones that we live in today uh, in North America? Or was it against these uh, revolutionary uh, kind of, I'm going to call them momentary societies, ones that prop up momentarily, but then, as Evan was saying, kind of get uh, tore back down for various political reasons after. And another interesting point you guys raised earlier was that um, uh, that 1984 and Animal Farm are being taken up by right-wingers now and uh, interpreted differently. So you can see that these great works are often ambiguous and intentionally so, so that they could be taken up and interpreted in different ways by different people. Absolutely. I think you can really distill Orwell's interest as uh, freedom. He believed in freedom. He was an absolutist in that sense and uh, was disillusioned by anything which uh, counteracted his uh, his personal autonomy or social autonomy in a greater sense. Yeah, and in any revolutionary uh, society, uh, you're going to have misinformation. That's uh, kind of a given. We've seen it in across Latin America. We've seen it in the Middle East. Uh, we saw it in Spain. Um, so the fact that Orwell comes to terms with the misinformation on the ground uh, but yet says, I still valued the equality and that mm. sense of camaraderie that was there. Probably, I think uh, Matt might have the direct quote, but it was something like, it's the closest to um, true egalitarian yeah. society that I've ever witnessed, right? Yeah, I got it. That's the exact quote I'm going to read. Great minds, bud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the revolutionary atmosphere remained as I had first known it, general and private, uh, peasant and militiamen, still met as equals. Everyone drew the same pay, uh, wore the same clothes, ate the same food, and called everyone else thou and comrade. There was no boss class, no menial class, no beggars, no prostitutes, no lawyers, no priests, no bootlicking, no cap touching. I was breathing the air of equality, and I was simple enough to imagine that it existed all over Spain. I did not realize that more or less by chance I was isolated among the most revolutionary section of the Spanish working class. And I think he's talking about being in Barcelona there. Is yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, within the, the strongholds of yeah. union uh, organization. Yeah, and you can see the regionalization, uh, both politically and like ge- literally geographically regionalized um, in this quote right here. Definitely. And now, if I, oh, sorry, go no, ahead. No, please go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, if I could uh, also quote, or, quote Orwell and, and draw back to my introductory point a little bit, he um he mentions at one point that the uh, when he first arrives that the kind of effort uh, he was seeing out of the uh, the revolutionaries he claims was the kind of effort that could probably only be made by people who are fighting with revolutionary intention, people who are fighting for something better than the status quo. And that's when I talked about earlier the idea of a positive worldview being the the best thing to fight fascism. You really see it uh, through Orwell's eyes there that it's the people who are most able to take up arms against fascism or you know, dark nightmare scenarios of what is to exist and what currently exists are the people who want a better world. Now, uh, the fight against fascism through a better worldview isn't exclusive to Spain. Uh, We are currently, and have currently in the past uh, brief history anyway, uh, been living through uh, attempts to fight against fascism in other parts of the world. And here, um, I think of uh, the Kurdish uh, peoples. So, Evan, 
what parallel can be drawn between the experience of fighting against fascism in Spain and the kind of current mobilization that's happening uh, by Kurdish fighters? Well, very good question. I've been very, very intrigued and I've been following closely the uh, the revolutionary uh, forces in Rojava, which is Western Kurdistan. It's it's one of the areas that was at one point known as Syria. Um, but they it's the uh, this area held by Kurdish forces um, that is deeply inspired, though technically not affiliated with, the PKK, which is the Kurdish Workers' uh, Party. They've been active in Turkey for a long time and are considered um, uh, a terrorist uh, organization by most international governments. There used to be Marxist-Leninist um, and conducted terrorism campaigns throughout Turkey to try and nationalize and liberate Kurdish areas and peoples. Uh, eventually, the leader, I'm going to butcher his name, Abdullah Asalan, Akalan, yeah, Asalan. Uh, yeah. yeah, so he he got captured by the Turks and thrown on this crazy little island uh, prison, um, and he, he's just been reading. He's been reading ever since. Um, A little Gramsci character there, eh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll see. They discover the writings of this obscure American. Um, he used to be an anarchist. Now he's like a, a civil libertarian, or not civil libertarian. How do I put? A non-affiliated left libertarian uh, named Murray Bookchin. And he discovered this guy's writings on um, what he called uh, libertarian municipalism. He was largely concerned with how can we run uh, municipal areas without state um, power. And so Asalan got really intrigued by this, started reading, started writing. And so, long story short, Rojava is operating under a lot of Asalan's distilled uh, conceptions of how this is supposed to work. So when we hear about the Kurdish people uh, and we were chatting beforehand, uh, there's a great for the region a great deal of equality that is is that part of this uh idea of uh libertarian liberalism it, it it's it's increasing i i i not great deal maybe that's a little <laughs> one of a stretch because for it's the contemporary <laughs> too in this whole uh misinformation fake news uh situation we're talking about here it's, it's hard to know what exactly is going on but they've established women's courts uh, uh gender equality is incredibly uh, uh prevalent there compared to other areas and and what they were like just a few decades ago in those areas. Um, it's cool. There's, there's, you can see images of um, women's uh, tribunals and, and meeting, not tribunals, sorry, women's sort of union-esque meetings where they will be uh, deciding over some matter and the Kurdish forces will have soldiers there to protect them, but the soldiers are also on childcare duty. So you see <laughs> the awesome. women meeting and the, the men with guns, gun in one hand, baby in the other hand, just wow. uh, taking So, care. I mean, that's kind of like... Uh... You know, it's a version of the left's utopian general assembly, right? Exactly. Uh, where you have women front and center with the voice and men coming supporting them uh, in whatever capacity that is. But it's not the men who are on the assembly floor dictating. Exactly. Yeah. And you even hear about, um, you know, matters of uh, uh, sexual violence or what have you, like any sort of domestic concerns like that are often seen to by women's tribunals or courts. It's the women who get to try matters that actually uh, affect women. And just like a brief anthropological side note here. Um, so the Kurdish people, they emerged as a linguistic group somewhere around the turn of the uh, before common era to the common era. Um, and they have uh, kind of um, established themselves in the region that Evan's describing by the Middle Ages. Um, I found this um, really interesting article that we probably won't post, but... Um, Basically, the conclusion of it after doing genetics and linguistic analysis is that um, it's hard to pin down where the Kurdish people are from. 
and exactly what uh, the cultural boundaries almost are of this group. So just um, kind of off of Wikipedia, they are a Meso, um, Mesopotamian steppe people, um, but they are in Turkey, northeastern Syria, northern Iraq, northwestern Iran, and um, southwestern Armenia as well. So they span a whole region in all these different countries. They're like a, a minority ethnic group. Yeah, and they're, they're pretty much only continuous as an ethnic group. Otherwise, there's a great variation in their interests and, and political affiliations, like East and West uh, Kurdistan right now as they stand. East being in uh, Iraq as a semi-autonomous zone for the last few decades, and the West being this revolutionary uh, Rojava, um, are, are at odds and not terribly cooperative. Yeah, and um, you see these with um, nomadic steppe peoples. Um, this is a little bit of uh, archaeology, but... Um, it's quite common to see this sort of a political arrangement where you have various councils and a little bit more equality given to women as well. You see this with the Germanic groups as well around the Roman area. And um, it is kind of interesting, but it's also a huge amount of regional variation as well. As you describe East and West, they're going to have completely different sets of beliefs and polit politics perhaps even. Absolutely. So my point in bringing up Rojava largely is just that they are the ones right now doing the most to combat ISIS in uh, Syria, hmm. as it stands. And they're being backed by American um, aerial uh, bombardments and whatnot at the moment, though that, that link is very tenuous and right, yeah. they don't yeah. expect, uh, they expect to be left in the lurch at some point, to be honest. Right. And do you think uh, left in the lurch because of the sort of politics that they represent, the egalitarian sort of leftist politics? You always do see these sorts of revolutionary movements uh, shut down rather quickly by people who would uh, prefer to co-opt them or uh, prefer not to see them there. Turkey is uh, is currently conducting many uh, quiet military adventures against uh, Rojava to make sure that they don't have a continuous um, line of... Uh, uh, transportation between the PKK and the uh, the Rojava uh, revolutionaries but um, yeah they, they they are there's two major armed factions they they founded the SDF the Syrian Democratic Forces which are the ones that are uh, fighting Daesh or ISIS right now and that's largely run and composed of two groups the YPG which is the people's protection units and the, those are the male fighting forces and the YPJ which are the female fighting forces there's some really interesting uh, propaganda. Uh, that's interesting. Of women fighting. Yeah, it's interesting that the the division between the factions is on gender lines. They're very intense about no sex, no interpersonal relationships between men and women while fighting is going on. Uh, they see it as counter revolutionary. Um, so yeah, yeah, they're they're by and large um, strictly uh, unique. Yeah, and I think uh, when we hear uh, revolutionary, counter revolutionary forces. Uh, this doesn't mean it's easy breezy and peachy. Uh, you know, yeah, we just saw that in Spain. <laughs> yeah, so war war is is dirty. It's uh, you're gonna get what was it lice and uh, up and in your pants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all of your testicles. <laughs> sure, um, and or I don't other parts apparently. You know, but what's interesting about uh, the Kurdish uh, situation is that we don't hear about it very often. We don't hear that it has these labor <clears throat> movement undertones, and we certainly don't hear about its egalitarianness. Yeah, I, I only stumbled across these, uh, these situations in, in the whole Rojava conflict um, less than a year ago, and it, it's been wi widely reported on for the last five or six years, but uh, for whatever reason, you don't see too much of it on uh, CNN or uh, what have you. Though, to be fair, they have done... Um, exposés on it. They just play down the revolutionary aspects and play up right. the Syrian democratic forces yes. as some sort of nebulous uh, 
uh, like the Free Syrian Army, for example, is is taken to be a, a a fighting force against ISIS, but they don't get into what these groups really are or who they are. Yeah, and you usually when you do see them in the media, it's usually fighting alongside um, Western troops and scoring big victories. So it's a usually like, hey, let's support the Kurds because they're actually effective fighters, and they're usually described as honestly like just badass. Yeah, right? they're like badass mountain step people, right? Like, yeah, and that's like gives them the Americans, let's say something to rally behind feel good about militarily because it's been quite a while since they had a victory you know yeah, exactly and i mean like when the the americans tried to, to start the the free syrian army at the beginning of the war as a like a, a democratic force against uh isis's encroachments on the area they largely fell apart into a series of you know al-nusra affiliates and and other uh, fundamentalist uh, fighters um, can I just return quickly to Turkey as well? I think it's interesting that the Kurds are considered a non-national ethnic group, right? Like they you know, claim affiliation to ge- geographical territories, but they're not like Turkey, like a nation state. And I think it's kind of interesting that Turkey is considered um, an ally of Western powers, um, but then they're fighting the silent war off on their eastern border. Um, and Turkey would say that we've been fighting these steppe peoples going back hundreds and hundreds of years into the Ottoman Empire, um, and we don't need outside influences coming in here and fighting our wars for us. It's hugely problematic, for sure. Um, Evan, uh, from Spanish uh, darkness and fascism to Kurdish light and egalitarian mobilization, where, uh, you know, to wrap up, where do you think that this sort of movement against, this push against fascist politics uh, will take us? Well, um, I'm deeply hopeful. I'm deeply hopeful that uh, these sorts of movements can give us a uh, an idea of a better world and, and give people reason to, to hope. You know how you know vote um, turnout is dwindling in most major uh, European and Western nations. Uh, people are disenfranchised and without uh, without an idea of what could replace um, the slowly uh, uh, darkening uh, skies of of politics right now. And so I, I, I think you see places like Rojava as revolutionary um, vanguards of, of a better world. And then you also see in, you know, Western nations, leaders like Corbyn, leaders like Sanders, really stepping up and positing a better world and people taking interest. So it's it's, it's nice to see that, um, you know, people are, are fighting in various manners for a better world and hopefully... Uh, Here's hoping that it won't all just be uh, crushed. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to agree with you on that. Yeah, let's hope we're not all crushed. <laughs> Evan, uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. I have learned uh, so much from you. Yeah, man. Thanks for the thoughts, bro. Uh, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks, guys, for letting me ramble on. And uh, please do send uh, all your corrections to me. <laughs> I'm looking forward to listening to this. And I will tell you exactly where you can send that to us. So if you want to uh, send us your questions, concerns, comments, or considerations... You can do so on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. You can do so on Twitter at the SimPod. And while you're there, please use the review button on the page. Uh, send us five stars or whatever you think we deserve. Uh, you can always email us at semiintellectual at gmail.com. And you can find our show, including the archives and the additions and corrections page at thesim.podbean.com. We are on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. We're on 
I don't know, some new fandangled uh, radio internet thing. I, we're, we're in a lot of places. We're probably wherever you want to catch us. If hard we're not, not to find. We're not, to, we're not hard to find. It, but, you know, if you are having a hard time finding us, contact us and we'll, uh, we'll set you up. Or maybe we'll get posted somewhere new. Anyway, uh, we're going to come back with some recommendations. Evan, can you stay with us? Oh, I, I'm, I'm here stuck in the woods with you guys. Sure, I think I'm no his choice. ride home, man. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks again, Evan. Thank Thanks, you. guys. Después de una temporada se volvieron para acá si temblaron los burgueses no fue por casualidad Buenaventura Turru Ascaso y García Oliver tres palas negras de plomo apuntando hacia el poder Buenaventura Turru Ascaso y García Oliver, tres palas negras de plomo apuntando hacia el poder. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. This is Semi Intellectual Musings. We have some recommendations for you. Now Evan's stuck around, but we're going to start because. I hate it when guests always go first. It's <laughs> just the theme today. Yeah, it's the theme, theme today. Theme that Phil hasn't yeah, told us about. But, but thank you so much for coming. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for coming. Get the hell out. <laughs> Matt, uh, what are your recommendations for us this week? Um, okay, so I have a book recommendation. It's the first time I ever read a book by Douglas Adams, and he famously wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. Um, so I had no idea how great of a writer Douglas Adams was. Um, he's hilariously funny. I think this book is great. It's um, sort of existentialist in the sense that it uh, deals with reality and perception. There's ghosts in it, there's time travel, and, and it's laugh-out-loud funny. So I uh, highly recommend Douglas Adams' book, uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Nice. Oh, and it's also on Netflix as well. I'm going to check that out There as it well. is. And have you ever heard The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy BBC no. uh, stories? No. Uh, highly recommend as well. Okay, cool. You can catch that on YouTube. Sounds awesome. Uh, Evan, what do you got for us? Uh, I've, I'd like to give two recommendations if I could this time around. Uh, to start off a book, if you're interested in a better world uh, in fiction, science fiction, Ursula K. Le Guin was a sci- American science fiction writer. Her book, The Dispossessed, is uh, largely about um, an anarchist society on uh, on a moon, and there's, they broke off from the the other the planet, went over. Uh, fascinating book, really interesting. Uh, she's a good writer too. It's great to. Be able to sit back with some science fiction and uh, feel like you're doing praxis. Uh, and then, you gotta feel like you're doing praxis. Oh, you gotta feel like you're doing praxis. And then, just quickly, a podcast recommendation: a podcast called "Citations Needed," uh, hosted by Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. It's kind of like a, a more leftist on the media. They're only what less than ten episodes in, but every one of them is interesting. They they like will tackle charter school scam or um, BDS movement. Um, uh, internationally, uh, all kinds of interesting stuff. Really, uh, really knowledgeable guys and a lot of fun to listen to. I will second that because I've been following them as well. Great podcast. Fantastic. Cool. Uh, my recommendation is a book called Erratic Fire, Erratic Passion, The Poetry of Sports Talk. And that's by Passion Mala and Jeff Parker uh, with an introduction by Bethlehem Scholes. Uh, this takes interviews, snippets from post game uh, talks, uh, some locker room chatter. And puts, I'm going to show it to uh, to Evan and Matt here, and puts what uh, people oh, cool. have said in poetry form. Oh, it is oh, awesome. absolutely phenomenal. It is great. So here I have uh, uh, a poem by Muhammad Ali. Uh, so stuff that he said. 
Um, there is a, a. I could totally see that, man. Muhammad Ali. He belongs <laughs> in verse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He spoke in verse. So there is a huge disclaimer at the at the beginning, and I'm showing it again. It's like in a big black uh, box, uh, and it says, uh, "This book is a work of social criticism and humor. It was not authorized, prepared, approved, licensed, or endorsed by the athletes or by anyone on their behalf." Sweet. Uh, it is, awesome. <laughs> it is it is great. Uh, it's by a small-ish publishing house that I also want to plug, uh, Featherproof. So if you have a chance to get a hold of a Featherproof book, uh, do so. Um, it but, looks like a beautiful book. Like I'm just looking at the cover and how it's cut together. It looks really nice. It's it's well. it's oh. it's actually really uh, well put together. So even like uh, the table of contents oh, is wow. called a roster and it has huh. the different sports little icons That's next cool. to it yeah. uh so there's pre-game first half halftime second half post-game um you know poetry by mike tyson alan <laughs> iverson uh you know yeah. uh george larock has a piece in here practice? Hey. uh maria <laughs> sharapova <laughs> uh carl lewis so oh, Tig- yeah. tiger woods as well so anyway it's a it's a great uh before bed sort of read uh, very light but entertaining cool uh, if you want to join us uh, on social media we are at the simpod so at the underscore sim underscore pod we are on facebook at the simpod while you're there please use the review button rate and review give us five stars or you know maybe four but five is, is, is good uh, you can email us anytime you want at semi-intellectual gmail.com we can uh, we can be found on iTunes Stitcher Google Play any of that good stuff, wherever you want to find us. Yeah, anywhere on the internet. So please get into contact with us. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love your suggestions or recommendations for future episodes or parts of episodes. Yeah, without further ado, thanks again, Evan. Thanks I again, learned Evan. a lot today. Thanks, guys. This has been fun. See you all next week. Matt sounds like a uh, 90s white rapper. <laughs> with a failed career but it's uh it's a good timber
combatientes, los obreros del campo y de la ciudad, los que hemos de decidir sobre el porvenir del levantamiento proletario español. Y solo un régimen de libertad organizado de abajo hacia arriba debe ser el premio al sacrificio y al tremendo esfuerzo que está realizando el pueblo español. ¡Viva la revolución, camaradas! ¡Viva la CNT!